The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. So I do invite you to open your Bibles to John 17 if you're not there already. And as you do, by way of review, remember that last time that we were in John 17, we spent our entire time in verses 1 through 5 focused on the holiness of God. And if you were here, you may be thinking, no, we didn't. We didn't talk about the holiness of God. We spent all of our time in verses 1 through 5, yes, but we spent it all focused on the glory of God. That's what Jesus prays for in verse 1, right? Father, the hour has come. Glorify the Son that the Son may glorify you. This whole thing is glory-centric. We spent our whole time talking about God's God-centeredness. How he's all about his own glory from the start of the Bible to the end of the Bible. He seeks it. He pursues it. And I I tried to do my best to show how that is the most loving thing he can do for you. The most loving thing he can do for us. I tried to show that this is the most loving thing that Christ, as our high priest, can pray for us. That he and the Father would be glorified. And I'm so passionate about this because I think it's at the heart of the Bible, because I believe it's at the heart of who God is, as we'll see today. And I think, I told you this last week, that we encounter texts all throughout our Bible that we simply do not understand, can't wrap our minds around if we don't understand God's God-centeredness and how that's loving. People have stumbled over this for ages. People still stumble over it. C.S. Lewis renowned atheist until he converted, this was one of his biggest issues. He said, when I read the Psalms, C.S. Lewis's words, not mine, nobody get mad at me. He said, God felt like a vain woman pandering for compliments. Not my words. Lewis, go burn Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe if you want to. Don't do that, I'm just kidding. But his point was, God was always praise me, lift me up, magnify me, uh, more contemporary example, Oprah stumbled over this. Or Brad Pitt stumbled over I know, shocker, right? He was raised in a conservative Southern Baptist atmosphere. How in the world did he turn out? Never mind. I can make those jokes. I was raised in that atmosphere. This is a quote from Brad Pitt. I didn't understand this idea of a God who says, you have to acknowledge me. You have to say that I'm best. And then I'll give you eternal happiness. If you won't, then you don't get it. It seemed to be about ego. I can't see God operating from ego. So it made no sense to me. This is what we talked about last week. God's God-centeredness. And I wanted us to not fall into that stumbling block that Brad Pitt, Oprah, C.S. Lewis said. I want us to see it as the most loving thing that God can do towards us. And you may say, Jonathan, that's what we talked about, not God's holiness. To which I respond, okay, yes, we did talk about God's God-centeredness, his pursuit of his own glory, how that's loving towards us, which is exactly my point. We were talking about God's holiness. This is vital. This is not just review for last week. This is laying the ground for where we're going for the rest of this week and next week. We've got to see this. In talking about God's God-centeredness, we are talking about his 
holiness. How does that make sense? What What do I mean by that? Let's just start with the basic question of what does it mean to be holy? What do we mean by the word holy? It's a churchy word. We throw it around a lot. It's a good word. We need it. We need to know what it means because the Bible uses it all the stinking time. And whenever the Bible talks about God's holiness, we can talk about other things being holy. We can talk about you and I being holy. We'll talk about that a lot next week. But whenever the Bible talks about God's holiness, it tends to emphasize two different aspects. Okay? We need to grasp this. If you're a note taker, hence begin the note taking. The Bible emphasizes two aspects of God's holiness. First, at its most basic level, the word holy means set apart. If you grew up in church, you've probably heard that before. It means set apart, unique, distinct. So in other words, for God to have a holy people means he has a set apart people. For an object in the temple to be called holy means it was set apart for God's use and for use in the temple, for a use in worship, not for any other use. So when we apply that to God and we say God is holy, God is set apart, God is unique, what we mean is that God occupies a category all unto himself. Utterly unique, utterly distinct from everything else. If we want to put a label on it, I'd put the label of creator on that. He alone is in that category. No one else. You can't join that category by definition. You're created, not creator. God alone, he says that in Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 24. He says that I stretched out the heavens by myself. I alone stretched out the earth. God alone is in the category of creator. Everything else is in the category of creation. And he is distinct, unique from all of creation in every way conceivable. I'll just give you three. One, creation was brought into being. God was not. He is self-existent. Two, creation depends upon God to be sustained, to continue in existence. God does not. He is self-sustaining. Three, creation is dependent upon God to have any purpose whatsoever, any meaning. You remove God from the equation, it's nothing but matter. It's pointless and purposeless. Not so with God. God is not dependent upon anything. He's whole. He's complete. He's self-sufficient. I didn't think that growing up. Growing up, I thought that God was this great big God of love and he created us and everything else because he was lonely and he needed somebody to love. Just want somebody to love. Like that was God in eternity past in my head. Not so. He's whole. He's complete. We know that the Bible reveals him to us as triune. He is a God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, eternally existing in a loving communion of three equally divine, distinct persons. And within their triune relationship, there is perfect love. There is perfect joy. There is perfect peace. Perfect purpose perfect perfection. God is in his own category. Utterly unique, utterly distinct, utterly holy. And therefore, he is the greatest treasure there is. Do you see how I'm getting from point A to point B right there? All of creation is because of him. 
All of it continues to exist because of him. Any purpose that it has is because of him. Without him, everything else loses its value. Without him, everything else loses its existence. That means he is the most valuable thing there is. He's the most treasured. Let me, let me put it like this. What's more valuable, your appendix or your brain? Hint, you can live without your appendix. If everything depends upon God for its purpose, its sustenance, its very existence, then he is by definition the most valuable treasure. He's creator over all. All creation is under him. He's on the top. Everything that has value derives its value from him. When we say that God is holy, we mean he is uniquely, supremely valuable. That's aspect number one. His own category, uniquely, supremely valuable. That's not all that holiness means. Okay, there is a second aspect to God's holiness that Scripture talks about, or just a second aspect to holiness in general that we talk about. It's, it's a moral dimension, a purity dimension. This is the way that we probably talk about holiness the most, right? Uh, that something is good, that it's right, that it's true. This is what we mean when we talk about growing in holiness or pursuing holiness. This is what we mean when we call somebody holier than thou. They're acting like they're better than us. It means something that's good, that's right, that's true. Well, my question with that aspect of holiness is how do you measure if God is good, right, and true? Like if you want to measure if I'm good and right and true, we have external standards that we've agreed upon to measure that. Whether that's law abiding, we'll pull out the Ten Commandments. How do I measure up to this external standard? Or maybe we'll just look at other people. How do I measure up against them? But no matter what, we're always defining good, right, true by an external standard. Rewind the clock into eternity past when God alone in his own utterly unique category of supreme value is the only thing there is. There is no external standard. Like you can't measure him against something outside him. So how do you say that God is moral? I told you to take a deep breath. How do you say that he's good, that he's right, that he's true? How, how do we determine if God's thoughts are good? How, how do we determine if his affections are right? How do we determine if his actions are true? The the work of Pastor John Piper has actually really helped me personally wrestle through these questions. He suggests, and I think that he's right, I think Scripture confirms that that's where my conviction ultimately lies. I think Scripture confirms, this is what he says, that all of God's thoughts, affections, and actions, in other words, everything he does, are morally good, right, true, because... They align with his unique, supreme value. In other words, we said that the first aspect of holiness is that God is uniquely, supremely valuable. And now we're saying that everything God thinks bears witness to that. It's in line with that. It tells the truth about that. 
all of God's affections agree with that. They point to the reality of that. All of God's actions testify to that. In other words, God tells the truth about God. His thoughts reveal Him as supremely valuable. His affections reveal Him as supremely valuable. His actions reveal Him as supremely valuable. If He acted in any other way, as if anything else were of more value than He, He would not be telling the truth. He would not be good. He would not be right. He would not be holy. For God to be holy means that He is uniquely, supremely valuable and that all He thinks, feels, and does puts that value on display. Is it making more sense why God is God-centered? From Genesis to the maps... Why he holds up his glory as of supreme worth. For him to do anything else would make him unholy. He is supremely valuable, and all that he acts, thinks, does, says, whatever testifies to that. That is holiness, God's holiness. And when we see that, we call it glory. Glory is holiness on display. Put a text under it for you. Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah gets this magnanimous vision of God in his glory. There's beautiful seraphim angels speaking back and forth to one another in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 3. This is what they say. They say, holy, 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 supremely valuable, Supremely valuable. Supremely valuable. Utterly distinct. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His, finish it, glory. Why not holiness? The angels say God is supremely valuable. Holy. And all of the earth shows that. All creation points to Him as the supremely valuable Creator. And when you see that, you're seeing glory. When you see His beauty, His goodness, His greatness, His perfection, you're seeing glory. And this is exactly what Jesus prays. Now we're going to bring it back to John 17. This is exactly what Jesus prays in John 17, beginning in verse 1, is it not? Jesus says, Father, the hour has come, the hour of his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, that hour is here. Glorify your Son. Show the world who I am, my holiness, my supreme value, so that the Son may glorify you. Show the world who you are. Your supreme value from everything he said all the way from chapter 13 up to this point, we know that they do this in and through the Holy Spirit. The triune God in all of his thoughts, in all of his affections, in all of his actions is aiming to display who he is. 
This is holiness on display. And Christ calls it glory because he wants us to see it. That's his prayer. Glorify. Show it to them, to you, to me. Glorify the Son that the Son may glorify you. Let our people see who we are. This is the most loving thing that Jesus can pray for you and pray for me that we would see His glory. That the holy God, the supreme treasure over all the world would give us Himself to enjoy. What what greater thing can He give? The answer is nothing. He's got nothing greater to give than Himself. In Him is perfect love. Do you want to experience perfect love? There's only one place to experience it. If God truly loves us, He can only give us one thing in order to experience perfect love. Himself. In Him is perfect peace. Do you want to experience it? It's only experienceable in one place, in Himself. In Him is perfect joy. He's talked about all three of these things from chapter 13 through 17. His love, His peace, His joy. He gives them to us by giving us Himself. Jesus' prayer for His own glory, or God acting to do everything for His own glory, is the most loving thing He can do for you. I hope you see that right now. Like as the word is proclaimed, I hope that the spirit is at work to open your eyes to see the holiness of who God is in a way you've never seen it before. Utterly unique, completely distinct, supremely valuable. And all that he does promotes that value for my everlasting joy. I hope that blows your mind, captures your heart, captivates you turns you out from being centered in on yourself. We live our lives being centered in on ourselves, wanting God and everybody else to be all about us. That is a bottomless pit of despair, destruction, and death. You will never find perfect love, perfect peace, perfect joy there. If your idea of God being loving is God centering himself on you, you have bought into a lie of Satan himself. Because that is the very definition of death. In the garden, in Genesis 1 through 3, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they turned from being God-centered to be self-centered. And dying, they died. It's death. God wants you to behold His glory, His beauty, the only everlasting fount of joy, love, peace forever. It's the most loving thing He can do for you. That's all I wanted us to see last week in verses 1 through 5. Now, lest you think that was like the longest introduction ever, that was not just review. It's laying the foundation for where we're headed for the rest of this morning and for next week. Last week, I wanted us to see how Christ's prayer for His own glory is the the deepest depths of His love for us. And so now I want us to see how Christ's prayer for His own glory 
transforms the deepest depths in us. Hopefully we've seen it put on display, his love for us. But if you, if you glimpse the glory of God like this, it, it, it doesn't just blow your mind, oh my goodness, how much God has loved me and given me his, it doesn't just do that. It transforms you. It necessarily does. It has to. It must. I want us to see how that happens. How does beholding the glory of God, the holiness of God, how does seeing that transform us? Because that's not the way we normally think about transformation happening. The way we think about transformation happening is by a pastor, preacher, teacher, someone giving us a list of stuff to do that's different than what we do now. And telling us to try really hard, and here's a cool inspirational story that I got via forward email last week that'll help you try really hard to be a better person. That's not how transformation happens. Transformation happens by us beholding the glory of God. This is only at Shades Valley, people. (laughs) For those of you listening on the podcast, there's a loose toddler. (laughs) This is how transformation happens. You become what you behold. You either spend your life shaping a God in your image, or being conformed to his image. You either spend your life making a God in your likeness, or being formed into his likeness. You become what you behold. So I want us to see how that works. How does beholding the holiness of God in Christ, his glory, transform us? I I think we see at least four ways in verses 6 to 19. This week we are only going to cover two of them, and we'll do two of them next week. So here, I'm just going to give them to you, I believe. We see that beholding the glory of God saves us, secures us, sanctifies us, can't wait to get there next week, and sends us. This message brought to you by the letter S. (laughs) Believe that beholding the glory of God, when you see, when you see him, I believe that that saves us. We've been talking about that a lot already. I'm going to try and put it in a little bit different words. It secures us, sanctifies us, and sends us. So let's just unpack the first two. Number one, beholding the glory of God saves us. Saves us. Look at John 17 and verse 6. Jesus is praying, and he says to the Father, I have manifested your name, shown it glorified who you are. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So Jesus' prayer unpacks for us what happens to us when we behold the glory of God through him. He says it saves us. Look, Look at it again. Speaking of his disciples, he says, I have manifested your name to them, to the people whom you gave me out of the world. There were these people, his disciples, who were a part of what Christ calls the world. This is how all of us are born. 
was a part of the world. What that means in the Gospel of John, our author, John, he likes to use that term to refer to people who were separated from God, centered upon anything other than him. But, Jesus says, God has done something in the lives of these disciples. He's chosen them, called them as his own, saved them. And how did he do it? He manifested his name to them through Christ. I have manifested your name. Who you are, in other words. Name in the ancient world is much more than a label. It stands for who the person is, their character, who they are at their core. I've manifested who you are to them. I've shown them your holiness, your glory. Is this not how the Gospel of John starts? In John 1, in verse 14, the Word became flesh and He dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John goes on to say in verse 18 that through Jesus, what they saw was the very glory of God. God making himself known through Christ. I've manifested to them your name, shown them who you are, shown them your holiness, and this has changed them. They're not of the world anymore. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. They're not of the world anymore. Now they are word keepers. Your word, your revelation of who you are. They've kept it. They've received it. They've believed it. They've embraced it. That's how he says it as he continues on in verses 7 through 8. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. They've received my word. They've come to know who I am, that I'm from you, that I'm God in the flesh, and they have believed that you sent me. The disciples who were once of the world, centered on anything other than God, now they're no longer of the world. They are completely centered on the glory of Christ. Verses 9 to 10. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. I'm not of the world anymore. Saved them from that. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours. All yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. I'm glorified. I'm holified. My holiness is shown in them. These people, they've been completely changed, saved. How? Jesus said they beheld the glory of God in Christ. They encountered who God was in Jesus, the holy God, and His holiness humbles us. This is one of the implications of everything we talked about right at the beginning. When you encounter the holiness of God, God's God-centeredness, it humbles you because all of a sudden you realize that it's not all about you. It, it humbles you. It reveals to you that there's nothing more valuable than God. Nothing should be centered upon but, but God. And we spend our lives centered upon anything but. It's, it's like you've spent your life centered on a candle, praising it for its warmth and its light, worshiping it, worshiping it as like the brightest and hottest, and then all of a sudden you see the sun. You're humbled. The holy God humbles us. Isaiah 6, where we talked about that vision that Isaiah got of God in the temple. The first words out of Isaiah's mouth when he gets that vision is, woe to me, I'm undone. 
I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Peter, in Luke chapter 5, the, the apostle Peter, the first time he realizes he's in the presence of God in the flesh, or at least gets close to realizing that, he says, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. When you encounter holiness and the supreme value of God, it, it humbles us. This is why earlier we prayed a prayer of confession. Historically, Christians have done that throughout the ages as they've gathered together, prayed a prayer of confession to remind us of God's holiness and who He is. The holiness of God humbles us, but it doesn't stop there. The holy God humbles us, but He also gives us the greatest honor, Himself. That's what we've been talking about this whole time. Holiness reveals that nothing's more valuable than God. Nothing should be at the center but God. And this holy God gives us himself to be at the center of our lives. For, forget whatever candle you've been clinging to. You get the sun. That's why after that prayer of confession, Chris spoke over us the word of assurance. We're forgiven in Christ. Embraced in Christ. Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, right after he says, woe to me, I'm sinful, I'm a man of unclean lips. An angel takes a, a burning coal from a fire and touches it to his mouth as a symbol of it being purified, his sin being atoned for. Him being made right with God, accepted by God, brought to God. Christ in Luke chapter 5, after Peter says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Christ doesn't depart from him. He lifts him, takes him to himself. And this is what he does with us. The holy God, when we encounter him, we're not just humbled. The holy God doesn't just humble us. He honors us by giving us himself. Beholding the glory of God saves us from whatever we were centering our lives upon to centering our lives upon the only one who can satisfy your soul forever. God, perfect love, perfect joy, perfect peace, perfect perfection, yours in Christ. What is your candle that you've spent your life centered around? Striving to warm yourself by its flickering, dying flame. Striving to see your way through life by its light. And it seems like things only get darker. What, what is the thing that you've put at the center that you seek to, to, to find love in, joy in, peace in? Something I know about every single candle is it eventually burns down lower and lower until it's completely extinguished. And this is the reality with anything that we center our lives upon other than God. God is greater than the sun itself. His glory that gives you joy eternally burns with a brightness that the sun couldn't handle. What? This is the essence of what salvation is. Us being saved from whatever what was that we were centering our lives upon to be centered upon God. This is Jesus' prayer for you. That the center, the heart of your joy will be the glory of God. It doesn't get any plainer than his words in verse 13. Look down to it. These things I speak in the world. Remember he's speaking these where his disciples can hear them. He wants them to hear this. 
These things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. What is Jesus' joy? His joy is the glory of the triune God. Father, glorify yourself. Glorify me. All his thoughts, affections, and actions are aimed at that. He's holy. That's what he's aimed at. Father, glorify the Son so that the Son may glorify you. And he wants you to share in that joy. This is the essence of salvation, what it means for you to be saved, that the triune God is your joy. Is he yours? It flips everything in your life. Is is he yours? This is how beholding the glory of God transforms the deepest depths in us. It transforms your deepest joy. We get God. Beholding the glory of God saves us. Number two, how does beholding the glory of God transform the deepest depths in us? It secures us. It said it saves us. Now I want us to see that when we behold the glory of God, it secures us. So John 17, look at verses 11 through 13. Jesus, still praying, says, And I am no longer in the world, but they, his disciples, are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, not a mistake that he calls him Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the Scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. All throughout chapters 13 through 17, we've seen Jesus remind his followers, remind us that he is about to no longer be physically present with his disciples. He says it again right here. He's headed to the Father. Yet his followers, his disciples, even us right now, will still be in this world. And he's very honest about what that's going to look like, that that's not going to be easy. Look, look at verse 14. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I've given them your word, a revelation of who you are through me. And they cling to that. They, they follow that. You have become their greatest treasure. We talked about this very deeply when we were in John chapter 15 where Jesus went on a very long section about how the world will hate us. And we said that that will happen because we belong to a different kingdom and to a different king who ultimately reveals the corruption of the kingdom to which the world belongs. And as a result, we experience hatred, the rejection of the world. We keep his word, him as our king and our supreme treasure. And that grates up against what the world values. It convicts them. And so we're rejected, hated. Yet, when Jesus was present with his disciples, no matter how much rejection, no matter how much hatred they faced, he was able to guard their faith. He was a shield for them. That's what he said in verse 12, right? While I was with them, I kept them in your name. Which is another way of saying in you. 
I manifested your name to them, who you are, like he told us in verse 6, so that they believed, like he told us in verses 7 and 8. And I've kept them in that faith. Showed them you, they believed, and I've kept them in that faith. I've guarded their faith and their trust in you no matter what's come our way. He says it explicitly, I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, then we get the footnote, except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. In other words, Jesus says, not a single disciple has been lost under my care. And if somebody wants to bring up Judas, that was part of the plan from the beginning. Like if you go back to chapter 13, Jesus actually already quoted Psalm 41 and verse 9 back there in prophecy about what Judas was going to do. It's like, that's not new information. Judas betraying me, that, that was so that the scripture might be fulfilled. So you can't say that I lost Judas, that was part of the plan. Christ says, I have sovereignly guarded the faith of my disciples. But now he's leaving. So what will keep them believing? Like now when the world comes against them, when the world comes against us, when we feel the pressure, when we feel the rejection, the opposition, or the hatred, what, what keeps us believing? Verse 11, one last time. Look at it. Holy Father, keep them. You do this. Father, you do this. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. That last part we're going to get to next week. Holy Father, keep them. Guard them in your name. And then come these ever-important words that we neglect too often. Which you have given me. Jesus says to his Father, you've made a commitment to me. You've given me your name. In other words, you've glorified me by revealing me as God in the flesh so that these people come to faith in me. That glorifies me. Keep them in that faith. Do you see how that works? Your name, the revelation of who you are, you've given that to me. You've revealed that through me so that these people came to faith, which glorifies me. Keep them there. Keep them in that. See this. Jesus' prayer for the Father to keep you is a prayer for the Father to keep his commitment to his Son. Do you see the security that provides? The rock solid foundation for your faith. In, in order for God to fail to keep you, he would have to fail to keep his commitment to Christ. Keep them in your name, which you have given to me. Keep them in your commitment to me. Do you see that? This is so massively important because I counsel, I have people in my office all the time, I counsel Christians all the time who think that they may have done something to cause God to reject them, to let go of them, to abandon them. And I always... My, my question to anybody in that situation is always the same. I ask them, do you think that God has rejected, let go of, or abandoned his son, Jesus Christ? 
And of course, the answer is no. And I say, then he has not done so with you. For, according to this verse right here, if God fails to keep you, then he is failing to keep his commitment to his son. To glorify him, to glorify Jesus by revealing Jesus to his people, saving them and keeping them as his forever. Jesus' father is a holy father. He works all his thoughts, all his affections, all his actions for the glory of his son, including keeping you. All of God's thoughts, all of God's affections, all of God's actions are worked to keep you. I dare you to try to break out of it. He is a holy father. He works everything that he does for the glory of his son, including keeping you. For him to lose you would mean that he would have to quit being holy. He'd have to quit working all his thoughts, affections, and actions for the glory of his son. He'd have to quit being God. Do you feel the security of this? When I was, when I was 15, I got my first official job at a place called Putt-Putt Golf and Games. We had mini golf and laser tag and bumper boat, like a whole nine yards, all that kind of fun stuff. And my favorite thing to work was the climbing wall. Because when people, if I'm being honest, when young ladies around my age got to the top and got stuck, it was my time to show off. And I would scamper up the wall with all of my amazing climbing skills, which I have none of anymore. I did this all the time, though. You know, I worked there. So I'd go up at the top looking quite like the pro, and I would encourage them by telling them how secure they were, that they would not fall even if they failed. Even if their grip gave out and their feet gave way, they wouldn't fall because they were caught between their harness their cable, and our state-of-the-art counterbalance pulley system. That whole system would have to fail in order for them to fall. Shades, feel the security of your faith. It doesn't fall if you fail, for you are caught between the Father Son and the Holy Spirit who are committed to keeping you for their glory and your joy. The triune God would have to fail in his holy commitment to himself in order for you to fall. Beholding the glory of God secures us. Seeing Him for who He is gives us rock-solid security in our salvation that He is our joy and will be so eternally. You see the freedom that provides. I don't have to work for my salvation. It frees me from legalism. I don't have to work for my salvation anymore. I'm kept. I'm kept. It frees me 
from license. It destroys license. The idea that I don't have to live a holy life because God's going to keep me. No, His keeping me is His keeping Him as my supreme treasure and bringing all of my thoughts, all of my affections, all of my actions into line with the supreme treasure that He is. That's next week. We're going to get there. Beholding the glory of God gives us rock-solid security in our salvation that He is our joy and will be our joy eternally. And this unleashes us. It frees us to live holy lives. Lives in which all of our thoughts, affections, and actions display His supreme worth to the world. What does that look like? How does the glory of God sanctify us and send us? We're going to turn our attention to those questions next week.